Welcome to the Mini of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world, exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, from an intimately personal perspective amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from a Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor of philosophy at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a philosophical counselor. You give yourself a break and come back to breathe. Yeah, I like to, to, to bounce around, you know, to yeah. alternate different things, yeah. Well, let me say a few words about you, because, uh, uh, I mean, I echo, you, you do so many things. You are in uh, uh, a creative philosopher. Let's say in this way, I mean, you are a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. Um, you are the president of the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. And uh, I, the way in which I met you was uh, with the wonderful Plato, not Prozac. I yeah, still feel affectionate uh, to that book because it was the way in which I realized that, oh, wow, philosophy can actually do something for people. Uh, at the time, you know, I was doing my PhD, I was uh, wrapped up in very difficult uh, theoretical concepts. Uh, it was beautiful, I, I loved it. Uh, but I felt the lack of, uh, yeah, what do I do with this in life? And then I met your book. And then after your book, uh, I found a way to reach you. And then uh, I discovered that you are also the founder of the APA Association. Uh, so you actually train uh, philosophers, people to do philosophical counseling. And I never thank you enough for that because, uh, uh, yeah, you gave a shape to a passion of mine. I, well, that's great. That's great. So there's no contradiction, as you well understand. One can study what, what I call theoretical philosophy. Right. And it is. It's very beautiful. It's extremely deep. It's not for everybody. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, for, it's for those who, who enjoy and appreciate that kind of work. And we're a small population all overall. Right. Philosophy departments are, all, are very, very small, but that's usually the quality is, is very large. But, but there's no contradiction between doing that and applying philosophy to everyday life, helping people to be philosophical, as you well understand, at whatever level, uh, whatever depth suits them. Everyone is different, and they really need to discover what kind of philosopher they are uh, to yeah. help to, to make their way through life. So, yeah, we've been doing this now. APA has been engaged in this training of philosophers to be useful, as we like to call it, for... It's now 23 years, and we, we've been training, you know, uh -huh. it's just taking off. This last year, it took off in India. It's previous to that in China. Now it's taking off in Russia, and we've helped many pioneers in their own countries to go back and to further the growth of the movement. You know, we've had international conferences. We have a new website now, which has all the, the history of the movement from 1994 right to the present on the international conferences, who's organized them, the programs, the, the speakers, the links. So it's a, it's a very interesting way, as you understand, to uh, continue our lives in, in, in both spheres, the 
the intellectual sphere of the university and also the public sector where ordinary people are trying to find their way through life and sometimes philosophy is very helpful for them as you obviously know i totally agree how would you define uh, philosophical counseling Uh, what's your experience of it Uh, what can we say about well we can say we have to say importantly because especially in the united states where everybody is very psychologized no no offense to psychologists but they have a very big presence on the landscape here have Mm -hmm. had for many decades so the first thing to be said is that uh, they don't own the word counseling some of them think they do but there are marriage counselors and debt counselors and vocational counselors and uh, every possible kind of counselor and if you go back to Seneca it's yeah. several centuries, uh, yeah. and we go back to letters from a Stoic, we'll find, I think it's the letter 41, letter 40-something, 40 47 maybe, where someone says, what is, what is philosophy? What's the purpose? And Seneca says, the, the purpose of philosophy, philosophy only has one purpose. He says, counsel. Uh, uh. Ah, so from the mouth of Seneca, a great Roman Stoic, and the idea is to give counsel, to give advice, to give suggestions. When people can't find their own way, sometimes they need to consult someone. But the very first thing to say, even before that, is that we're an educational activity. We're obviously not a medical activity, and we're also not a psychological activity. We're not diagnosing anything. We're not trained to. We don't want to. It's important uh, for people to know this, Susie, because sure, sometimes there's something wrong, and then you have to figure out what's wrong. You have to have a diagnosis, a treatment. So if you have a medical problem, you seek a diagnosis and a treatment. If you have a psychological problem, you can seek a diagnosis and a treatment. It's not quite the same, uh, but it's more, more harnessed to that model. But if you have a philosophical problem, then then you're not going to discover what's wrong with you. You're going to discover what's right with you. <laughs> That's the other part of the human being, which yeah. is not being addressed. What what resources do you have that yeah. can be mobilized? What important things are you thinking that you don't have a context for in the history of ideas? You know, who who's your inner philosopher? Who's guiding you? Uh, mm-hmm. when you're not on the phone, when you're not on your cell phone, uh, you, you have to be in touch with that. And in many cases, the the inner philosopher is dormant. So mm-hmm. our job, it's like really Plato's model of the midwife. We have to wake up the mm-hmm. inner philosopher in our clients, and then they're fine. So it's not psychotherapy. No. Certainly not. It's an educational activity, and it's an inquiry, as you know. Do you have any episode of awakening uh, that is particularly dear to you, of uh, having uh, a wake, uh, a a dormant philosopher in any of your clients, and it was uh, a satisfaction for... uh, Well, you see it happening, and it's uh, this, this model, I didn't invent this idea. Uh, for a long time, I had other conceptions and still do because each client is different, right? We don't have a we don't have a model. Thank goodness for shoehorning everybody in. You know, everybody mm-hmm. gets cut in. You know, get fits into this box. No, we have many many ways, Eastern, Western. You know, in between. Uh, but the idea of the inner philosopher came to me when I met a great Japanese Buddhist leader, Daisaku Ikeda. And uh, he also, they had played on a Prozac in Japan, and he became aware of it. So uh, having been invited to meet with him, he, he understood better than we did, in some sense, what we were doing. So viewed from a Buddhist perspective, we're, we're definitely helping people to awaken. 
And this can be understood from a Mahayana perspective as a kind mm -hmm. of bodhisattva practice. So we're really uh, wanting to help people to wake up. I mean, that's that's a Buddhist picture anyway, that most of us are, are sleeping in one way, even wide awake. We're mm -hmm. somnambulating through life. And the idea is to become more aware, more conscious, uh, more connected, more compassionate, more, you know, just overall to wake up and and utilize the power of the mind. So that's Plato also in a way. So if you look back through the lens of Buddhism, if you look back at the Greeks, this is a, a way in which they're considered to be on a bodhisattva path. So if we model ourselves after the Socratic enterprise, and the, you know the, that kind of mission, then then Buddhists see us as in a way kindred spirits, although we're not espousing a religion, we're not trying to proselytize. But that was a revelation to me, and the reason is, Susie, I'll I'll be brief, but the reason is that in the end, most of my clients, when they're ready to be, you know. <laughs> their own philosophers, they always say the most important words. It's not the counselor who says something to the client, which is the big important insights. You know, it's the client who will come out with something totally brilliant and then they themselves <laughs> hear it and say, ah, you know, this is the aha moment. Uh -huh. But it's not, it's not us. It's, we're not the ones who provide the, you know, the great interpretation of the dream or the brilliant. Sometimes we, of course, we give them good ideas, but, but they're the ones when they wake up whose voice is the voice of their inner philosopher. And that's always a very satisfying moment. Yeah, it's a very enriching job. You learn from them, uh, they learn from you. It's uh, it's an ongoing exchange and uh, a myodic process. Myodic, uh, that's right. That's yeah, what it is. You were saying. And look, uh, I mean, I know that you're an expert also in uh, uh, Asian philosophy, in Eastern philosophy. And something that I saw often is that uh, Western philosophy is considered more or less useless when we need uh, some kind of help uh, and people tend to look at Eastern philosophy to nurture the spirit. What do you think? Is there a bridge we can build there uh, or uh, Western philosophy is uh, too difficult to reach? Uh, they are, uh, there's a big gap. Uh, what do you think? Well, I, if you, people find what they're looking for, I mean, if you want to look for gaps, you find <laughs> gaps. If you want to look for bridges, you find bridges. Uh, uh, in my own experience, I, I don't see uh, much, much that's really different in the human being. We, we have in the great civilizations of the world and in the great philosophies that, that they engender, uh, all kinds of different perspectives and some of the debates that Western philosophers have been engaging in for centuries, let's say about human nature, you know, are we fundamentally good or fundamentally uh, evil? Is this a false dichotomy? You know, how is the balance achieved? And all these questions were all debated in ancient China. You know, the hard question, the so-called hard problem in Western philosophy, what is consciousness? You know, is there, what's mm -hmm. the mind-body problem and its solution? I mean, this, this this was discussed in India 2,500 years ago. It was the only thing they were interested in is the nature of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it, th this is not a gap. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that what has happened in the West is a gap was produced because of various historical factors that gradually resulted in philosophy being withdrawn from society 
and tending to isolate itself within the ivory tower, especially second half of the 20th century, the, it began to retreat from everyday life and tackle questions of interest primarily to philosophers. So critics, you know, had emerged. There always are uh, people who, who come forward and say, but this is part of philosophy, but not the whole thing. But nonetheless, the tendency was to, was to retreat from everyday life. And uh, that's in the analytic tradition. In, in the continental tradition, they didn't do that. They went overboard in the other direction, uh, postulating all kinds of crazy models, uh, you know, pre pretending to talk about reality, but uh, they couldn't be further divorced from it than us. I mean, if you, you know, again, with all due respect, if you... If you look at the, the so-called leading continental philosophers, there's no European government talking to them. I mean, they have, you know, I mean, Habermas could probably fill a hall with 1,500 people in a, like this to talk about some theory of justice, but there's no government in the European Union that, that is interested or understands anything that he has to say. So they're also disconnected, just like there's no philosopher within 50 miles of the White House. I mean, they don't see any. It's, we, we live in a culture of bread and circuses. Not too many philosophers are necessary. So I think that both European continentalism and Anglo-American analyticity, in one way or another, became less relevant to everyday life. And people began to view them as some kind of peculiar occupation for eggheads, which really had nothing to do with anybody else. And they, they have nobody but themselves to blame for this image. It's the wrong image. Because we've had throughout history, with that exception of time, there have been practitioners in every generation. And I could rattle off dozens of names of people you know john stuart mill the great the great utilitarian the great champion of, of rights of reform for women of reform for you know ending slavery children's rights all the wonderful he was a parliamentarian he served in the english parliament so he he walked the walk he just didn't write books he actually engaged in public service with bentham to try and reform many aspects of life and succeeded without violently overthrowing it, like Marx wanted to, you know. Um, there have been many philosophers throughout history who have engaged uh, in, in... Bertrand Russell was a, a famous pacifist. He was arrested. He was trying to protest the excesses of World War I and the insanity of the slaughter, and they saw him as unpatriotic. He was, you know, always, we are beacons to signal the problems of conformity and of mass culture conformity. Always philosophers stand up to be those beacons. Right, Cicero did it back in ancient Rome. He had his head chopped off for his trouble, and, and the wife of Antonia, you know, she stuck a hat pin through his tongue. But that's only because they feared him, because his words were powerful. So you could go all the way through uh, the history of philosophy and find in every generation philosophers who were actually engaged in some kind of amelioration of the human estate. They just were not only theorizing. They wrote important books, but they also acted on their principles. Uh, Lou, and you are one of them. I mean, uh, you... On a good day. <laughs> <laughs> On a good day. We need good days <laughs> in life, right? <laughs> but, you know, I know, I mean, you, now you are expanding this uh, APA, this uh, Association for Philosophy Counselors, uh, 
all over the world. I mean, you are out there in the world trying to bring philosophy to the world. What resistance did you have to fight against? I don't think it was all easy and good. I mean, what kind of fights you had behind your shoulders already? Well, I, you know, I like uh, I like things not always to be easy. I'm a little. I'm, I wouldn't say that I demand that the world be difficult, uh, but sometimes we need a little pushback in order to really evaluate our own mission, to be mm -hmm. clear in our own thoughts and deeds. If we meet with no resistance, then we'll have chaos. If nobody ever meets with resistance, it becomes just chaos because everybody does what they want, you know? I think that there are important norms and cultural evolution mimics biological evolution. It's not the same, but there is a process that I call synthetic selection, which is analogous to natural selection. So okay. ideas are tested. Uh, um, inventions are tested, things that people do are tested, and things that withstand the test of time are definitely subject to different challenges. Mm -hmm. And uh, important uh, works of art or of, of, of politics or of philosophy which withstand the test of time and have some kind of survival value have characteristics which, again, mimic, mimic the viable species. So they have adaptability, they evolve, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they're mm -hmm. applicable and so forth. But so, I mean, in my life, I've met with all kinds of uh, impediments. But I think that for the benefit of people uh, who are listening, it's really important to realize that impediments, uh, that adversity sometimes is actually a very beneficial thing. Again, uh, you, you know, I might go back to Seneca. It's like the idea of the of the putting the iron in the fire to turn it into steel. Uh, you have to be tempered in life and be made better than you are. And life's circumstances can certainly help us to become stronger. And uh, to also, as I say, examine more more carefully what it is that we believe and how we act on it. So specifically. Um, I was I encountered problems as a graduate student mm. uh, because uh, I wrote the thesis that I wanted to write. Uh, I didn't listen to anybody. I listened to my heart and my mind, and I wrote what I wanted to write. And my supervisor, he had my best interest at heart. And as the thing was taking shape, he was reading it chapter by chapter. And one day he said to me, he, he said two things. His one thing he said was, you're never going to get a PhD for this. It's too much. So <laughs> I said, that's okay. I'd rather err on the side of too much than too little. Okay. And I can always whittle it down later. And the other thing he said to me, which was very funny, is uh, because there he was English. I did this in England. And, you know, there's a great streak of Puritanism still in, in the culture. So you're not supposed to enjoy what you're doing. You're supposed to work very hard. You know, you're supposed to yeah. really work hard, have a great work. You know, the Protestant work ethic. You're really supposed to, to but you must not enjoy it. That would be a sin. Uh -huh. you know? Otherwise, God doesn't love you. No, that's right. So you, you have to really make every effort but never enjoy anything. It's a terrible torture. People subject themselves to this torture. It's not like that in the Catholic countries. Not that I'm a Catholic. I'm probably, I'd be a very bad Catholic too. But I, I mean, the Catholic countries at least have the confessional. So you could have a wonderful time. You could enjoy it. You could make a lovely meal and enjoy it and then confess later. You know, and then wipe the slate clean. This is a very smart thing psychologically. It gives you a way to expiate your sins, and then you can go right back to sinning the next day. So it's not an accident that the best food in Europe is all from Catholic countries, Italy, Spain, France, oh, yeah. you know, not an accident. 
<laughs> and the best parties too, right? The best fashion, the best art, you know, not the best philosophy always. That's from the people who were in denial, in denial, you know, from the north. But definitely the worst food. From the... So, I mean, I was uh, encountering that obstruction and uh, he was right. So anyway, he said to me one day, he said, now I know what the problem is with you. He, he said, you, you, you love philosophy. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was a problem. You're, you're enjoying philosophy. You're enjoying this. I said, yeah, what's wrong with that? I mean, I'm devoting my life to it. I mean, going into debt for this. If I didn't enjoy it, I'd be crazy, you know. Um, so this is a question sometimes people enjoy too much. And those are the hedonists, right? They spoil themselves, ruin themselves by pursuit of pleasure above all else. That's a mistake. And sometimes people deny too much and don't allow themselves to be who they are because there are external forces which want to prevent them or, you know, live vicariously through them or are afraid of them. So people have to have the courage, which is a practice. So anyway, the, result, the resolution of that problem was very simple, although time-consuming. I wrote my first thesis to satisfy myself, and indeed I was satisfied with it, not my examiners. They made me write another one. So I, I wrote another one. It satisfied them, uh, and uh, I got two for the price of one. What's bad about that? <laughs> well, you certainly are a writer, but on two different topics or just the yes, same? Yes, two completely. And the no. and the first one, finally, the, um. what they told me to do was take this thesis, they said, you know, and take a very, very tiny chunk of one of the mm -hmm. chapters right. and, bore, and bore down, you know, touch mm -hmm. the bottom. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And the, the, the thesis they, they eventually gave me credit for was a very detailed and in-depth uh, computer simulation of prisoners' dilemma strategies and the evolution Ew. of families of successful strategies in computer-mediated competitions to see what kind of characteristics were, uh, were conducive to basically uh, a superior performance in the prisoner's dilemma. Very interesting and challenging uh, thing in game theory. So that's what they eventually gave me the PhD for. But the first thing that I wrote was a huge, <laughs> a vast work on the philosophical foundations of human conflict. And that was published last year, finally. I actually, I, I didn't, okay, didn't yeah. want to publish it, but eventually they came after me and they, you know, publishers came after me and they said, you have something, you have something. I've always got something. And uh, they, they, they wanted to publish this. Can I draw my blinds? The sun is now beautiful streaming Absolutely. in. Go ahead. But it, yeah. I'm too well lit to now. Head. I'm yeah, too yeah, well yeah. lit. So pardon me. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, we have to fix the lighting here. It's just a beautiful day. I'm happy. But yeah, here we are in a bunker, so there's no reason. And the sun is basically... Your house looks amazing. Well, thank you very much. It is. I'm very fortunate to, to have this yeah. place. It's a very beautiful place, and, uh, uh, and, and I'm very, very productive here. Uh, the space that one is in sometimes is important, you know. I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, you can be comfortable. It's possible to be comfortable and productive in a variety of places. And some great philosophical works, you know, were written in jail by people who were imprisoned. I mean, that can happen. You have the consolations of philosophy and you have, yeah. you know, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, very famous and iconic piece. You have Thor. Oh, I don't hear you. What's huh? Echo. Now I hear you. For a moment, I lost you. You lost me. 
Yes, now oh. you're back. Good. Oh, okay. So anyway, you have lots, but but it's also nice to have a um, one's own space and and you know to have inspiring surroundings. Yeah, so the, first book, uh, the, yeah. the first thesis got published last year by uh -huh. Roman and Littlefield. It's called On Human Conflict, The Philosophical <laughs> Foundations of War and Peace. It's probably the most important book I've ever written, and it will have the smallest readership of any. It never it won't be no. Oh, no. I'm serious. Because for one thing, they're charging a fortune. You know, it's one uh, of these academic cool. books, and they won't make a cheap version. That's how they. That's their model. So the textbook is like one hundred and thirty dollars. The hardcover, you know, is one hundred. And then the the ebook, I think, is five dollars less. You know, but that's ridiculous because the Russian pirate website. So no one's going to buy this book because it's just too much money. I mean, there are actually it is selling, but but it's not. It's not going to be. Um, it's not going to be particularly well read. It's 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 my best work though. And tell uh, us, tell us more. What's the foundation? What's the thesis? So what can you tell us about this book? Oh, you, would you want to know? Yeah, Eliel. Yeah. Now, yeah, what I showed, it's really an existence yeah. theorem. I was not able to solve the problem of war. Okay. Um, but what I was able to show in various ways is that there is no... Uh, there, there, there's, there's no mathematical or statistical likelihood or necessity, but you know, there's no mathematical model that shows us that wars are going to happen or, or indeed are, are likely to happen. Uh, there, there's no causal necessity. So if you look at the etiology, the philosophy of causation, you will not see any causal necessity for war. Uh, if you look um, at, uh, if you look at uh, the biological roots of conflict, and they go very deeply, it's now very fast to deny biology altogether. We have a radical anti-realist, anti-scientist wing uh, that's basically brainwashing everybody. But in fact, we are products of evolution and the biological aspects of conflict, not warfare, but conflict run, run very deep. But there is no biological imperative, I discovered, which dictates that, that we have to have wars. Uh, there are various excuses and pretexts. You know, there are political pretexts and there are religious crusades. And all, but these are cultural artifacts. They're not part of our biology. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is no overarching cultural program either that says, you know, we have to have wars. And there is no systemic inevitability either. Uh, because I looked at systems theory, and there's a lot of literature there. So basically, it's a very long story, uh, but the conclusion is that people make wars because they will to make war. At the end of the day, it's a question of people deciding that they that they want to do it or they need to do it, but they don't have to do it, and that means it's an existence theorem. So peace is possible under certain conditions. Uh, if problems are addressed in what I would call a sober way, in a sane way, not in a reflexive way, then it is possible to diminish the impact that armed conflict has had on our species and evolve. But the evolution required for this is neither biological nor cultural. I've shown that cultural evolution is necessary but not sufficient for right. the cessation of armed conflict on a large scale. We need to have a third form of evolution, which I call psychic evolution. So evolution of the psyche. Don't I'm not talking about phonopsychic again. I'm not talking about <laughs> yeah, that kind of psyche. I don't psyche. think you were. I mean, evolution of the human psyche itself mm -hmm. uh, is 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 going to be the thing that will facilitate uh, a greater promise of peace for the species as a whole. 
So it's a very complicated uh, work, but I revealed things which uh, uncovered things which have never been spoken of before. There are some discoveries in there. And I think the first review, it's only taking two years, but the first review is coming out supposedly very soon by Lydia Amir, a dear friend and colleague, and she's very brilliant in her own right. So she's undertaken um, a review of this book. But I can send you the link to that as well for the intrepid souls who, <laughs> who, uh, who, who, who want to tackle maybe even one chapter of it. It might be instructive for them. Yeah. So I overcame uh, basically uh, obstacles by uh, essentially not regarding them as obstacles, but as challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think that another big factor, Susie, is that people sometimes get in their own way and that obstacles are self-created and we become our own impediments and we need to remove the self-obstructions inside mm -hmm. uh, in order to be who we are. And philosophy can help with that too. Yeah, and that's part of the psychic development also you, yes. you were uh, mentioning before. Do you think it has to do also with pleasure? I mean, you mentioned pleasure before and the need uh, of people to refrain from pleasure because it's kind of a scene and so on. And so it seems that evolution has to be struggle and uh, uh, worries and uh, pain. Well, pe people are going to be swayed by uh, market forces, and so naturally there are all kinds of so-called quick escapes that, uh, that are offered, but often they become addictions, you know, whether they're licit or illicit. Uh, there is this, uh, I mean, pain and pleasure are sovereign masters to a certain extent. Very few people will be really stoic enough to disregard them or mm -hmm. Buddhist enough or Taoist enough to regard them as imposters, which mm -hmm. to a certain extent they are, like success and failure. They're imposters, uh, and we should not be too carried away, neither discouraged by failure nor blinded by success. It's very easy. Success is more dangerous in some ways. But pleasure is like that. We definitely require pleasure as human beings. It's something we probably have an instinct for. But remember, Freud was constantly juggling Eros and Thanatos. He, he, he was never sure that we have this, okay, appetite for life, and maybe we have an appetite for death, and he was never quite willing to relinquish that one. Um, I, I, I think that Hobbes had a, a clearer picture of us. I think people are basically craving something most of their lives, and it might be pleasure, it might be power, it might be whatever they deem to be good for themselves, but we're not always the best judges of that either. I would say to some of your younger people, and this will be not helpful to them, but they may remember it one day, uh, that is the very best things that have happened to me in my life I did not really foresee or plan. I certainly took steps down particular roads but what really came up on those roads and what i encountered the really best things that i've encountered were not things that i myself had willed or even wished for they just manifested and i think that's a, that's very important we're not in total control in other words although we we have to control what we can and among other things i, I would definitely say for younger people um, they, they, they ought to get their hedonistic impulses satisfied. It's a very good time of life to do it. Okay, when I was 18, and maybe when you were 18, you weren't that interested in Plato either. Am I right? 
or yeah. maybe you were an exception, but most no, most, no, no, no. I mean, no, no, yeah. no, normal normal teenagers don't need Plato. They need they need music, and you know, in our case, it was the 1960s. So oh, we we, well. had, we had the we had the wonderful counterculture. We were hippies. We had you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and motorcycles, and rock concerts, and you know, we had all this amazing stuff going on. And so we didn't need Plato. I think an appreciation for philosophy comes with a little more maturity in most cases. So certainly I began to appreciate Plato more and more as I matured. But I think that young people really need to, to grow, and they're growing so rapidly at that stage that they really need to experience, you know, within safe, relatively safe margins, mm -hmm. uh, whatever pleasures life offers them, and do it safely and do it wisely. But don't deny yourself because you don't want to have regrets later. Uh, that's yeah. the best thing is not to have regrets. So sometimes you need to basically explore and, and, and seek what your impulses are telling you to seek. And that way you, you, won't, you won't say, oh, if only I had done this when I was 18, you know, now it's too late. You don't ever want to say that. Yeah. But what you can say is if you do, you know, and every decade and people don't write about this, we have books on uh, endless books on development, uh, developmental psychology for children, right? Mm -hmm. And they keep moving the goalposts. But I mean, we always have this children are being studied and adolescence to a certain extent. We have a lot on on adolescence and then it stops. And then somehow it's assumed like, OK, now you're 21, like and no more books for you. You know, now good luck. You're an adult. Go find your way. But it's not like that mm -hmm. because the 20s are another stage and the 30s are another stage and the 40s are another stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and people need a different kind of guidance at different life stages. So philosophy becomes more and more useful, I believe, as people mature. I agree with you. Yeah, it's a given that you have to get everything figured out uh, within a certain age, but that hardly ever happens. Uh, no, 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 yeah. not anymore, especially since for those fortunate enough to have health care and, you know, medical mm -hmm. science has doubled life expectancy in the last century it's astonishing just imagine as i was researching fernando sor who lived in the early 19th century i mean life expectancy of a man during the napoleonic wars was reduced to under 30 years old wow. it wasn't much more than 30 anyway maybe 40 before napoleon and for women maybe 42 but that's a short i mean that's very short you know yeah. And then when they were basically killing each other off in wars and then you have famines and, you know, plagues and all the things that follow with war. So everyone's life is being shortened and you ended up having people with a life expectancy of 30 years old, which is just so sad if you consider what can be accomplished in a fuller life. So I think it's important for people to appreciate that the longer life goes, it's not just a question of quantity that we need in every decade of our lives or every phase, however you count them, to do the things that are qualitatively important for that phase in order to live a full life. And then the result is we're not any longer talking about pleasure. We're talking about something that is less transient and more enduring, what the Greeks called eudaimonia mm -hmm. or fulfillment, mm -hmm. right? Or awakening or something, whatever you want to call it. It's not, it's, it is pleasurable, but the goal is not pleasure. It's, it's a more indestructible form of happiness that does not depend on a mood uh, one day or the next. It does not depend on external circumstances from one minute to the next either. 
And that comes with a certain maturity. This is not something that most young people need to worry about. Yeah, you know, we were talking about uh, how can you reach, uh, if you can, uh, some kind of um, fulfillment, uh, some kind of uh, uh, strength uh, when you have uh, to make the jump, right? When you finish uh, your, uh, your cycle of studies, uh, you have to make a decision for uh, your life, for your vocation. Uh, how was it for you? I mean... Uh, uh, this pressure, the, this pressure to get a job, to have a career, is that what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah. yeah, well, that's what most people feel. I never had that pressure because <laughs> I never wanted a job or a career. So I, I was able to avoid that problem. As you know, it's not going to help most of your listeners, but I would say you could always become a philosopher and you don't have to worry about, about looking for work. Uh, but I mean, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying that, that basically, some people know what they want to do from an early age and and they do it whether they want to be an astronaut or a doctor or you know whatever they want to be and then they're fortunate in a way or they have a gift they have a musical gift or some other kind of gift and this is what carries them so they don't have this problem but the majority of people have to make choices so i would say you know a good way to proceed in a kind of general way would be if as uh, undergraduate students or even as high school students, you, you should just pursue as many interests as possible to discover what you like and what you don't like. You have to be an empiricist. We don't always know what we want to do. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we, you know, people will make suggestions, but you have to, in the end, make a choice. So the choice should be well informed. It shouldn't be you choose this because your friends, you know, convinced you or your parents pushed you. But it should come from your own heart. And how you can help yourself is by taking a variety of electives, not over-specializing too soon. Mm -hmm. This is how I found out I don't want to be a medical doctor. I have many friends who are, and I'm glad they are, believe me. But I myself thought about it for a while. Oh, yeah, maybe that's a good thing, right? So I, I started to take the pre-med cycle and immediately discovered that I really didn't enjoy uh, organic chemistry whatsoever. And then, even worse, biochemistry totally defeated me. Uh, I got into a lab, and I had to make acetosalicylic acid, and we spent four hours coming up with this white powder, and it was like 20% pure. I said, what is the point? I can buy it in a drugstore, and it's pure, and I can do it now. I don't need to go to it. So to me, it was not a useful way for me to spend time. I didn't engage with it. So that helped me understand immediately that I'm not probably a good candidate to go to medical school because these various studies which you need to build on are not things I enjoy doing. And this is how we discover, not by sitting in an armchair and pondering, but by attempting to do something, we discover what we are good at, what we want to be good at, what we perhaps don't have aptitude for and are really not interested in. So the job of education then is really important. It would be ideally to expose young people to a huge spectrum of possibilities and let them make choices and try things and experiment and see what they like. And that way they have a good chance of finding something which intrigues them and maybe that resonates with them. So that's one thing, okay? Don't get pushed into a corner too soon in life. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I strongly agree. I didn't have this interest either. I mean, I didn't have money either to be a philosopher or to pursue a career in philosophy. But I decided, okay, that's what I want to do. So let's do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you didn't initially say, I want to be a philosopher. Oh, no. Oh, no. You know, I tried that with philology. And everybody was studying so hard. Everybody was on these books 24-7. And I can't. <laughs> I'm not a good philologist. I, can't. I, I wasn't up for studying that much, being that much on the books. I realized, uh, yeah, can't be for me. Well, there you go. But it's it's also a bit of like trial and error. You know, I never yeah, I was not interested in philosophy mm. for a long time. And I didn't I think I became a philosopher because I wanted to avoid having a career initially, oh, at I least I uh, really uh, that people say I, I was born this way. So maybe it's a pre-existing condition. Maybe, <laughs> we'll, you know, being a philosopher is a kind of a, you know, a personality disorder. Who knows? Right? Of course, I'm joking with you, but. <laughs> I mean, was there any moment in life in which you worried about how people saw you, how people perceived you? I no. noticed that this is something recurring in new generations. No, I'm sorry. No, that's probably because of Facebook. Again, you know, we didn't have this stuff. Um, we didn't care. Uh, basically, we, we, we had friends who accepted us for who we were, and each one of us was unique. Uh, and I want to say this, that we have today a terrible culture of conformity, and there's a tremendous amount of pressure on people to conform and a fear of being ostracized or being excluded or canceled if they don't. It's, it's very rotten to the core. It's mean, and it makes people dysfunctional and less than human. It's dehumanizing, and it's absolutely intolerable. A better model was only about three months in the 60s when everybody trusted everybody. But in, the, in those days, we called each other freaks. And this was actually a term of, of approbation. This was a, ter it was a compliment because to be a freak meant that you were an original person. It meant that you presented yourself in a totally unique way. Your dress, your, the way you dressed, the way you decorated yourself, the way your hairdo, the way just you walked down the street and you were unique and people would look at you and there was nobody like you. And everybody was there for themselves and honest and sincere and authentic. That's what it meant to be a freak. And nobody was judging anybody by saying, oh, he's the wrong kind of freak or she's the wrong, you know, she's, you know, she's, she's not the right kind of freak no there's no it's not possible to conform to freakdom because by definition a freak is individual and we usually think of it as pejorative like a freak of nature or a freak storm or a freak accident usually it has pejorative negative connotations but on the positive side a freak is a unique human being and therefore does not need or want to conform. And when you have a whole society of unique people, then then all they're conforming to is, if, if you like, it's meta, uh, they're conforming to being who they are. It's a much more wholesome way to be. But we didn't have to worry about Facebook or, or Twitter. So uh, we were in a way freer, okay? Freer. Yeah, yeah. And now there's a, uh, I don't know if you watched that movie, it comes to my mind now, it's out uh, in the theater, uh, I'm Your Man. Have you had a chance? I'm sorry, that? I don't. I don't go to theaters anymore. Uh, I, oh, I can, that's a pity. <laughs> but I could watch it. I mean, I don't. I don't spend much time watching movies. I'm probably missing out on some things. So thank you all. Put it on my do list, okay? But it's pretty <laughs> far down. 
I like to produce more than consume. I know, I know. Well, but in any case, I appreciate the suggestion. I mean, I'm, I'm mindful in other ways. I see it with my own students and the, the, the issues that they bring up in class mm -hmm. also are parallel to what you're talking about or similar. Uh, so they have all kinds of pressures again. And so when we're younger, especially teenagers, maybe early 20s, then you, you have a circle of friends and you, they're, they're very important. They're really important. Uh, so you naturally want to have, find people who share your values or share your views and hang out with them. Uh, and, that, and that's fine. There's nothing you know, wrong with that. But it's when our values are imposed on us by external forces that demand that we conform, then they will make it difficult for you to be who you are. And you may pay a price. You may wish outwardly to pay that price to belong, you know, to be accepted by by whoever. But uh, in the end, you may be denying something very individualistically important to you. And uh, eventually it will express itself. Yeah, which is the root of depression. When uh, you lose the connection with yourself, uh, then it's hard to find the energy again. And uh, yeah, and then you sit there incapable of moving next. Look, there was a time, was there a time in which you had, you felt uh, in a down and uh, you felt that you had to start from scratch, uh, that there was, uh, that you didn't have so much energy and uh, nevertheless, uh, you had to restart, uh, to had to keep things moving uh, or something. Well, that's a slightly different question. I, I uh, think yeah, that, that I've had, I've lived several lifetimes in this life or yeah. several lives in this lifetime, you know. Uh, so starting over is certainly not new to me, and in, in some sense, I like to think of every day as a new start. Uh, it makes me very happy to get up in the morning and, and have, you know, this new day. It's like a blank slate where a lot of good things can happen, and that, that's uh, something that I've developed a bit later in life. But listen, the truth is, Susie, that I was, I've worked many kinds of jobs and uh, many kinds of careers. I was a professional musician for a number of years and a teacher of music. Uh, I was an athlete. Athlete, uh, yeah, I read it. Oh yes, I mean, I you know, I was definitely into many kinds of sports, and I played you know, call high school and college sports. I didn't get drafted professionally, but I went on and studied martial arts for many years with a great master from China uh, who came to the New World, um, and I've been a classical guitarist and a teacher and a performer of music and a recorder of music. I had a 10-year career as a musician, and then later in life I went back to school. Only around age 29, I went back to do a first degree in theoretical physics. I decided that I loved mathematics and had been neglecting it, so I went back to do that. That was a different wow. life, and that led me to philosophy of science and a PhD or two, two, two theses, uh, you know, philosophy of science. And then I had a different career. Uh, but in between, there were salad days. At one point, I ran out of grant money. I mean, you know, you put together a succession of, of support to study, especially higher education. It's expensive and uh, not being uh, wealthy and not having resources. I was dependent on scholarships like many are. And eventually, you know, um, you, I, I reached a point where I was not quite there. I had to write another thesis and I had no money to support. So I went to the remote countryside and I chopped wood and fished uh -huh. and uh, lived on a, you know, on a, in a grassroots economy very far from civilization and was extraordinarily productive there. 
And then I had another life, you know, when I re-entered university as a, as a lecturer and embarked on a career path. Uh, and then another life when Plato Not Prozac was published, 1999. I'll never forget the publicist from HarperCollins, this wonderful woman who took me to lunch uh, one day just a few months before the publication. And, you know, we were discussing the tour. It was the old-style book tour. Those things don't exist wow. anymore. Oh. But in those days... Mm -hmm. You know, there was a real book tour. It was a wonderful experience. And she just looked at me and she said, your life is about to change, you know. And really, it did. It changed in a huge way. I had no inkling of it. And then it changed in other ways as a result of that change. You know, change brings change. So, I mean, looking back, um, I, could, I could see five, six different kinds of careers, uh, different kinds of stages of development. And each one was totally different from the previous one. So I had to really start at the beginning again and understand the way to go forward. But this is a wonderful opportunity. I never had what a lot of people have, which is a complaint that they're bored uh, or they're sick and tired of what they do or they wish they could do something else, but they're living in a box and they don't know how to get out of the box, you know. I, I was born outside the box, so I don't have this problem. Uh, but I understand for some people it takes maybe maybe some daring or some courage or some belief Mm -hmm. uh, in order to take that step they always really wanted to take. I remember a friend of my mother's who, um, at age 80, <coughs> went back to do a BA in history because all her life, this woman had really wanted to study history and one way or another, she just never got around to it. She had a whole long, long life already with family and all these and a career. And then at 80 years old, she said, well, I better do it now. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and she went back to school. She got admitted. Yeah. So these were like she was in a class with, I guess, she must have been like her grandchildren or great grandchildren. And she finished her degree. She did a four-year degree in history, and she was the oh. proudest person you would ever see graduating with her cap and gown and getting her degree in history. And this was a real life fulfillment for her. So I think that people, you know, who have unfulfilled ambitions really at some point need to bring them to light and say, look, if this is who I am and this is what makes me feel successful in life, I have a purpose, I have a mission, mm -hmm. go for it. You don't have to go for all of them at once, but you have to go for them. You have to make your life worthwhile. Well, thanks, Lou, for this burst of energy that uh, you bring with us uh, today. That's really a, a wonderful message to live. I have just one final uh, question which is you know the i don't believe you but anyway oh, go ahead yeah you know i, I, I was we could this, this could be a long conversation <laughs> it's very enjoyable and yeah. i'm very grateful for you you know taking the time also to spend oh, with me. i am but what's your what's your quote-unquote final question i'm curious yeah you know the the clue of the uh, of this interview what's the meaning of life for you what what do you get right is it a question that we can ask even what is this well, uh, you know, this this wasn't on the list, so you... I know. <laughs> no. And nothing was on the list so far. That's We're okay. Doing... We're both outside the box. I like the Zen master's answer to that. The, the, um, the disciple asked him that question, what's the meaning of life? He said, when I'm hungry, I eat, and when I'm tired, I sleep. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to be trivial. It's not trivial. It's actually very profound. It's that everything is meaningful 
if you if you treat it as though it were meaningful and i would say more importantly if you want things to be meaningful then live in the present moment because every moment is meaningful every moment is magical if you can find that ordinary magic you know one of my hobbies is photography i love nature especially uh -huh. Uh -huh. and it's so beautiful but there's always a shot the whole thing is people spend hours walking around with a camera you know you take a hundred pictures maybe you got one good one right the whole art is you usually have to take a lot of pictures to get the one that's really beautiful but right. actually potentially every picture could be really beautiful you have to see it every moment has something which we would call a beautiful picture but the art then is do we see it do we notice it do we capture it do we experience it that's the meaning of life every moment has that magical picture that beautiful uh, instant where 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 we kind of resonate with reality and our egos are not in the picture that's another thing people will find that their egos will get in the way of of that moment too so the the meaning is being really immersed in the sea of life and swimming and 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 just being very grateful that it's happening how can we keep our eyes open do you think because it's really hard huh? what's that how can we keep our eyes open it's really hard i mean you can keep it open for uh, 10 minutes <laughs> i don't know it's already long time i don't know how how can we stay awake what uh, well we can practice if it's a virtue if we're talking about something that is in any way a virtue which i believe it is mm -hmm. virtue of finding meaning in life then making our lives meaningful uh, then i think that there are practices that conduce to to being virtuous and and there are many whether they're stoic practices of asgesis okay. the exercises they invented are very good for this uh quick exam or the or the buddhists the buddhists better than anybody i think in terms of explicitly giving us practices uh which which help us to be appreciative and to experience that ordinary magic as chagyam trungpa called it or indeed the taoists uh, the taoists are the most poetic and the most mysterious but they did very similar things so for example i remember being in a traffic jam uh once in new jersey well it's not just once but i mean one day i was in a traffic jam in new jersey and i had to be somewhere it was just not going to happen because it was a traffic jam and okay most people in in a traffic jam experience a physiological change which is really hundreds of thousands of years old unfortunately modern life does not always uh, accommodate itself well to our hardwired fight or flight response right. so when people are stuck in traffic they experience it as stress mm -hmm. and stress is uh, everybody is now living in stressful ways you don't have to be in traffic for that stress has been induced by the culture so this is a good thing for many people whether they are in a traffic jam or not they're stressed stressed out right they say so when you have stress you have 12 physiological changes that take place and they're all preparing your body either to fight or to run. That's the fight or flight response. Right. And unfortunately, being stuck in a traffic jam induces that physiological state. But you can't fight it because the traffic doesn't care. It's not going to... So people try and fight the traffic, but that's, there's no reaction. Or you run. How, how can you escape? You escape the other way. The cops will pull you over. You made an illegal turn. You're going to get a ticket because they're waiting for people to try and escape from it, right? So they can ticket them. So you can't f run and you can't fight. So what do you do? Mm -hmm. I looked out the window. Um, I looked out the window, 
and uh, right now I'm 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 you know, looking out the window and I'm seeing I'm in a traffic jam and I'm going to be late. And I didn't have a cell phone in those days. I couldn't I couldn't phone them and tell them anything. And I see a cemetery. It's mm. right beside. There's a lot of cemeteries in New Jersey. Anyway, I saw a cemetery. And I did a cemetery meditation. I was no longer in traffic. I was looking at the cemetery and saying to myself, well, you know, would I rather be here or would I rather be there? And obviously at the moment, I would rather be here. We're all going to be there one day. What's the rush? So <laughs> cemetery meditation helps you. Ah, and, okay. and, and there are many practices, the Stoics, the Buddhists, the Taoists, they all do cemetery meditations okay. because they are that way going to be way more appreciative of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we're all going to be there one day, you know, uh, and and so now we're in this mode of being conscious and engaged, and the proper response, I think, is to be deeply appreciative for the opportunity to be in life, mm-hmm. and why waste it? So yeah. that gives us tremendous meaning, just Thank the fact you. that we don't take it for granted. The bottom line is, why would you take anything for granted? It's a gift. It's a great gift. And how do you respond to being given a gift, usually with, with thankfulness, with gratitude, with, with, you know, isn't it nice to be appreciated and to receive? Well, if you're alive, Susie, and you're, you are, and you're walking around as a living being, then you've been given the gift of life. You don't even need to know who the giver is, whether the giver is God or, you know, or, or evolution or, or both or neither. It doesn't matter. You have this wonderful gift, and if you can express appreciation for this gift, then your life has tremendous meaning already. Yeah. What can I say? I'm incredibly thankful uh, for uh, this conversation we had together and uh, for the time you dedicated to us. Uh, you, uh, you're a remarkable person <laughs> and uh, incredibly pleasant to to talk to. I I hope the message, any message, uh, anything can arrive <laughs> beyond this talk and uh, stay with us. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. I think you're doing a wonderful thing with the podcast, and I hope that our audience will find something interesting in there. This podcast was funded by the Faculty Support Grant at CSU East Bay. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes materials. 